Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. In the Old Testament, we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 29. And we're going to begin with verse 4 and read through verse 14. Reading from the New American Standard Bible, Jeremiah 29.4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name, I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. We're half a month into 2017. And I'm sure many of you entered the year with great expectations. You began to plan out your year. You may have mapped it out regarding your family's life or your business life or maybe your recreational life. Some of you already have your week's plan that you're going to be on vacation in the coming year. You're saving money in order to take a dream trip or a mission trip. You've been planning. I have in my hands, obviously, a purple book. And on the front of it, it has 2017 Planner. I saw this at the Lifeway Christian store. It looked a little feminine, but after all, I am a pastor, so I went ahead and bought it. And on the front of it, it says exactly what the Bible says in Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. What are your plans for this year? How do they match God's plans? Because in the final analysis, our plans are not really worth having unless they track behind the Lord's plans. So today, what I'd like for us to consider is the idea or the subject, which is in this passage of Scripture, that God's plans are 
made for us and what are they? Well, two things surface in this passage of Scripture about God's plans for you in 2017. The first of which is that God's plans for you this year, or any year for that matter, are based in His knowledge. God is an all-knowing God. I know the plans I have for you, God says. Now, think with me just a moment about that. Think with me about what we read from Psalm 139. God says, I have searched you and I know you. That's the way the NIV puts it. The New American Standard more precisely translates it. I have searched you and I have known you. Now think about Jeremiah for just a moment. In the opening words of his prophecy... In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, this is what God said to the young man, Jeremiah. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This word know and knew keeps popping up. David uses it, of course, in Psalm 139. Jeremiah uses it. Many of the biblical writers use it. He says, I have known you from before you were formed and before you were born... I consecrated you to be a prophet to the nations. God knew Jeremiah just like He knew David and just like He knows you and me. And interestingly enough, God has a customized plan for you and for me. David speaks about the plan which God had for him in Psalm 139, verse 16. He says, Before one of the days that was ordained for me was yet written in your book, you knew what my life was going to be like. You had a plan for me. God knows every aspect of our being. David talks in Psalm 139 how God knows when he sits down and when he rises up, when he lies down. He knows his thoughts from afar. That is to say, before you and I think a single thought, God knows those thoughts in advance. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. And that passage in Psalm 139, according to the New American Standard Version, makes this suggestion to us. That God is intimately acquainted with all our ways. God does not study us. He does not search us. He does not know us with the detached approach that a scientist might take when he or she looks into a microscope and seeks to know what's in a piece of protoplasm. God is intimately interested in you. Isn't that what David speaks of as he works his way through this great psalm? He talks about how God knew his inward parts. He was involved in the formation of his inward parts. The word translated inward parts literally is the word kidneys. And to the Hebrew, the kidneys were the seat of the emotions. So what God was saying through David was this. When God formed David in his inward parts, his kidneys as it were, God formed his psyche. God formed his psychology. God formed his temperament, his personality. Did you know that God did that when he formed you? Now, many of us don't like the way we are temperamentally. And if you've got issues with your temperament, 
that affect and offend other people, then there is a problem. And we're not talking about the defects in our temperament, but fundamentally, before you came to Christ, you're the same temperament that you were after you came to Christ. That's what the Scripture teaches, and that's what scientific observation would reveal. Some of you were born as introverts, some of you extroverted. You can see it almost when babies are tiny, can't you? You mothers especially could see this, if you have more than one child, how your first child might have been very demonstrative, your second child very shy and retiring, and you knew it before they were even a year old. Maybe even even before they were six months old, you could see it. God knew what He was doing when He made you psychologically. But he also formed you physically. Isn't the language awesome, which the Holy Spirit gives David to use to describe how he was fearfully and wonderfully made? The Scripture says that God actually embroidered us. That's what the language said. He used embroidery terminology to describe the exquisiteness with which God made you and me Physically, from that one cell came trillions of cells that became you. And God was involved in that. God plugged in the genetic code in your life, which resulted in who you are psychologically slash temperamentally slash in your personality. But He also formed you and me in the way we are physically. Now, many of you don't like the way you are physically. You wish you were taller, or you wish you were shorter. You wish you were more muscled up, or how shall I say this gently? I can't even say it. Use your own imagination, okay? But the reality is, God knew what He was doing when He created us in our racial identity, in our intellectual identity, in our physical identity, our intellectual identity, our athletic identity. God put all that together in you. You are a unique creation of God. And God does not make any mistakes. And I love what I heard an inner city child say one time. He said, God don't make no junk. He doesn't. God made you. He knew you. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, God had a specific idea about how you should be made. And He completed that idea in you. I know the plans I have for you. Here again, the same word that is used by David and the same word that God uses to describe how He knew Jeremiah, before he was formed in his mother's womb, he knows the plans that he has for you and me. And when we look at this in the Hebrew, it actually says, not I know the plans I have for you, but this is the way it's introduced. I, I know you. Now, God doesn't stutter. This is a literary device that God uses to put the emphasis on it's his plan for your life that really amounts to anything that's worthwhile. Our God is an all-knowing God, and He says in Isaiah 
10, that He declares the end from the beginning in our lives. He knows everything about our lives. Isn't that comforting? He has a plan for you and me. He's interested in you, but He's significantly interested in how He can use you and use me. So I repeat, God's plan for your 2017 is based on God's knowledge. He's all-knowing. Here's the second emphasis of this verse, and it's this. God's plans for your 2017 are based on God's purposes for you. What is God's purpose for you? It's the same purpose as the purpose He has for me and every one of us who know Him. He wants us to bring glory to His name. He wants us to focus upon Him. And and if I can go back for just a moment, these plans of God are God-centered plans, not Mike Woods-centered plans. His plans are centered in Himself, not ourselves. It's very important that we understand this, that God wants to use you and me for His glory. In the book of James, we are introduced to a group of merchants. These merchants are entrepreneurial to the max. The depiction is that of their hovering over a map of the Mediterranean world, And they're putting their heads together as to how they can go to this or that city today or tomorrow. And once they get there, they're going to spend a year there. And then they're going to engage in business. And then they're going to make a profit. And then God says to this group of enterprising merchants, He says to them, You don't even know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor which will vanish away. Instead, you ought to be saying, if it's the Lord's will, we will go to such and such a city and we shall live there. But as it is, James writes to this group of enterprising individuals, who are planning out their lives, their strategy. They've got their business plan in order. What does he say to them? He says, as it is, you are boasting in arrogance, and your boasting is evil. Do you know what's most important about our lives for 2017? That we heed the Word of God and realize that He is the one who is the master planner Does that mean it's improper for us to plan our day? Not at all. Provided it's planned under the watchful eye of the Lord. With the caveat, if it is your will, Lord, please help me to know what your will is. That's where we ought to begin. We ought to begin with the words of David or something like them every day. Psalm 143, this is what David says, Teach me to do your will, O God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. That's the way we should begin. I don't care if you're a preacher, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a teacher, or a business owner. I don't care what your role in life is. That's the way we begin it. We begin it humbly, coming before Him 
and saying, Lord, Lord, teach me. I want to do Your will, Lord. I don't want to do something that would be contradictory to Your best for Your glory, Lord, but also for my good. You know, God's interested in His best for you. His best is that you and I bring glory to the Lord. That's it. That we honor the Lord. We're here for His glorification, and the result is it's good for us. Now, let's go back to verse 11 of chapter 29. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. So what we know that this text teaches us, God is interested in our good, not for calamity. The word translated calamity, I don't know what version you have in your hand. You may have the NIV. You may have the New Living Translation. You may have the English Standard Version or the King James or the New King James. But there are other kinds of interpretations of the word calamity in these translations. Harm, evil, at its basic meaning, this word ra in Hebrew carries with the idea of evil. It has the idea of unpleasantness. God's plans for us are not unpleasant. They're not plans that will ultimately give pain to us. They are not expressions of God toward us that would indicate that He wants us to be unhappy. None of those things would be true. This word is used by Jacob after he had arrived in Egypt where his son Joseph had been for many years. You know the story. He has an audience with the Pharaoh. In fact, the Pharaoh summons him. He wanted to talk to him. And he was asking him about himself. He said, I am 130 years of age. And my life has been a life that has been a waste in a way. That's what he said. And they are sad days, he said. And the word sad is this word that's used here by God when He says, I know the plans for you. Plans not for calamity. God does not have a calamitous plan for your life. But He says the plan He has for us is a plan for welfare. And the word translated welfare is the word shalom. You know what the word shalom means, don't you? It's a greeting that's exchanged by Jewish people and other Middle Easterners who say it a little differently. In Arabic, it's very closely akin to the Hebrew speak of shalom. Peace, right? But it's a different kind of peace. We as Westerners have a very limited view of peace. When we think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict, the end of conflict, the end of a war, or the end of a quarrel within a family. Those are things which we take great relief in, right? When they happen. We're so happy when wars end, whether they're personal wars or national wars or international wars. We are so grateful when those wars come to an end. But the word which is translated shalom is a word which carries with it the idea of wholeness, completeness, well-being. This is the idea of this word, shalom. Is this life, which is a life of shalom, 
a life which is free of stress? Not at all. What this idea conveys is it's a life that is not dependent on favorable circumstances, but on the Lord's presence. The Apostle Paul understood this. He said, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, remember where Paul was at this particular moment. When he wrote the book of Philippians, what were his circumstances? Were they favorable circumstances? He was in prison. He was an old man. He was suffering from partial blindness. He was alone. Those are circumstances, one of which would lay most of us low. But you put all that together and you've got a bundle of problems, haven't you? And what does he say as he writes from his prison cell to the Philippian church? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. How could that be? The Lord is near. Earlier in the book of Philippians, listen to what he says. He says, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God with greater courage. Think about it. He was saying, I am a prisoner of Christ, as it were, in chains. And the Lord is using me to encourage other people. He introduced people to Jesus. We know that when we read the book of Philippians, while he was a prisoner there. Paul hated to be confined, but the Lord worked in his life and placed him in such a situation. Let's look back at our text. And I won't look at all the references, but at least three times in this text, God reiterates how it was He who sent this group of people, His people, into exile, into Babylon. Babylon was hundreds of miles away. Babylon, as the crow would fly, was about 600 miles away. But as the route would take them so they would avoid the severity of the desert, which was between Babylon and Jerusalem, it was more like 800 or 900 miles. That's a long trip on foot, isn't it? They had traveled there. And when they entered this city of Babylon, it must have grieved many of them. Because as they walked down as a display of the power and the triumph of the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar, as they walked down and through the main thoroughfare, paraded as the spoils of victory, as they walked down, they would walk over huge tiles of pavement and engraved periodically would be tributes to the Babylonian god Marduk. And as they looked at that, they thought, I'm sure, why in the world would God send us here to discipline us? We know we did wrong, but look where we are. They were in a place where the language was different. The culture was different. Of course, I've already alluded to the fact that the religion was different. It was so difficult. If we were to read the chapter before, we would read about a false prophet who communicates with these people. This is what the false prophet said. He said, in two years, the Lord's going to spring you from your captivity. Well, two years is a long time to be a slave. 
two months is, two weeks are, two days are. But if they knew there was an end to it, they could handle it. And you can imagine the elation which came with that news. Two years, two years, we can make it for two years. And then along comes the prophet Jeremiah, who was a true prophet of God. And he says this to them, 70 years. I'm not much with math, but that's 35 times longer than two years. And many of the people to whom this message was delivered knew they would never live to see Jerusalem again. They would die there. Talk about poor circumstances. These are the people to whom this promise was first given. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And notice what he says here in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. And plant gardens and eat their produce. In other words, live life. Live your life despite the circumstances that are contrary to what you would choose if you could choose them for yourself. Live life. And then look at verse 6. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Two generations are spoken of here, at least, maybe three. And what is the word from the Lord to these people? Not only live life, but also marry in given marriage. Have children. Have grandchildren. Do this. Multiply. I cannot help think, but think of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? His brothers sent him away as a slave, 17 years of age. He didn't have thousands of others to accompany him like these people did when they were sent into exile. He's sent in to exile. He's sold as a slave. He becomes a prisoner for 13 years from the age of 17 to 30. Then for another seven plus years, he waited for the word that the Lord had given him that had gotten him hot water with his brothers to begin with to come to pass. And the Bible says that word was like a chain around his soul because God had given him this word, but he found a way to flourish. You know how he flourished? The same way that the Apostle Paul flourished when he was in the Philippian situation, when he wrote the book of Philippians, when he was in the Roman prison. The same way. Because the Bible says the Lord was with him and gave him success wherever he went. Now, I don't know where you are today. You're not in Rome, and you're not in Babylon, but you may be in some sort of exile. Exiled in a relationship. You may feel like God has forgotten you. You may feel like God doesn't have any good plan for you. You are ready to give up on God. Someone here has already given up on God, I would imagine. But think again. Think about what God says. Where you are, don't let that place determine and define who you are. You are defined by whose you are. And to whom do you belong if you're a Christian? You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the part that He plays in our lives in such situations. So, multiply. Think about Joseph. After Joseph was liberated from prison and elevated 
to the place of authority alongside Pharaoh, the Bible says that he took a wife. Her name was Azanath. She was the daughter of Potipharah, who was the priest at a place called On. And they had children. They had two boys. One was named Manasseh. The other was named Ephraim. Manasseh's name, Joseph gave this name to him, means this. The Lord has caused me to forget my trouble in all my father's household. Now think about that. All the trouble that he had had for all those years, what did the Lord do? He made him forget. And then all his father's household, does that mean that the way he dealt with the mistreatment he had received from his brothers, he just sort of blanked that out? I think this is what it means. I believe it means that he forgot the mistreatment itself. And he forgave. You know what the Bible says about love? Love keeps no record of wrongs. We see this in operation in Joseph's life. And he says, I'm forgetting it. This, by the way, is in Genesis 41, 51, these names. And the next name, his son Ephraim. And this is what I really am getting at here. Ephraim's name means, the Lord made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So here he was, all those years, all those long years, 20 to 25 years, a prisoner, falsely accused. And the result was, the Lord made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. I believe that's what God was saying to these people who were captives in Babylon. I want you to be fruitful, multiply in the land of your affliction. May I say this to you, based on the authority of God's Word? You will be more fruitful in a place of affliction than you ever will be in a place where there's no stress in your life. If you do not let your circumstances define you, but rather you let God's plans for you define you. That you are His child. He has a definite plan for your life. And He wants to use you immensely. A little later in Philippians 4, we read Paul saying this. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. Now, I take great comfort in the way in which he couches that statement. I have learned the secret. It was not overnight. I don't think it was overnight for Joseph. It wouldn't be overnight for these exiles in Babylon. It's never overnight for any of us. It's a process. But as we respond properly to the negative circumstances in our lives, and we realize that the Lord is with us, then we can say, along with Paul, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God... And the peace, okay, the peace, the shalom of God will be with you. If we do not give in to the pressures of anxiety, rather, if we pray to the Lord, we praise the Lord, the result is going to be that we experience the shalom of God. You want shalom? Do what God says. Trust the Lord. Be a man and a woman who comes before the Lord and says to the Lord, Lord, I rejoice in you in this situation. Lord, you know I don't like it, but Lord, 
I know that you love me. And you have a plan. And more importantly, Lord, I know you want to do something significant through me. Paul says, I repeat, I've learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. And then a little bit later, he says that very famous statement that we're aware of. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. The Lord is present. Is He not? The Lord is near. He's in us as well. And He lets us draw off of His power to deal with these difficult situations. Well, Jesus calls this life of contentment the abundant life. If you want to hold your place here, turn back to the New Testament, to the book of John, chapter 10, verse 10, a verse that probably everyone here has heard and is familiar with. He says in the middle of that verse, John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. The word translated abundantly is from a Latin word, compound word, which means to rise in waves or to overflow. That's the way this Latin word is used, to rise in waves. If you've been to the seashore, you have seen the surf rise and then crash on the shore and rise again and crash on the shore. Some of you have had the pleasure of surfing on that kind of wave or body surfing on that kind of wave. It's exhilarating, is it? This is the idea. The abundant life is a life that overflows. This word was used to describe a river which had gotten out of its banks during the rainy season. The Greek word that is used here for this word abundant that Jesus chose is a mathematical term which always has to do with a surplus of something. It's used in Matthew chapter 14, verse 20, when Jesus had fed the 5,000 and He told His apostles to go and gather up the leftovers, that which remained. It's this word, gather up the abundance, the overflow of the miracle which I have created. This life that is the life of contentment is a life of abundance. I'm not talking about material abundance, and that's not what Jesus has in mind. It's the kind of abundance that is described by Paul in Ephesians 1-3 when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Talk about abundance. There's no end to the abundance. My God shall supply all your needs. It has something to do with material things too. According to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus lives in us if we know God. Through Jesus. He lives in us by the Spirit of God. And He gives us this kind of surplus in our lives. It's an extravagant life. The life that is described here by Jesus is described by the Apostle Paul as the Spirit-filled life. It's a life that's controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the most extravagant, exhilarating life is a life centered in the will of God, under the domination of the Spirit of God, led by the Son of God, Jesus. Listen to some ideas related to this life, which we call the abundant life, the Spirit-filled life. It's not a stagnant life. It is a dynamic life. And here's why it's 
dynamic. It's because of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will give you the Holy Spirit and you shall be my witnesses. My power will come upon you. The word is dunamis, the word from which we get our word dynamo or dynamite or dynamic. This is the life we have. Jesus brought that to us. He speaks of it. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. This abundant life. And the writer of John says he was speaking of the Holy Spirit that had yet to be given. But that's what happens when we come to Christ. We have eternal life. He came that we might have life, have Himself. He is the life. And this life is eternal life. And then He says, and not just any old life, but an abundant life. Not a stagnant, but a dynamic life. Not a shallow life, but a deep life. So many believers live on the surface. And sometimes it's due to neglect on the part of us who have gone a bit deeper spiritually. We neglect to help them to understand that the development of this life is something which must be maintained and must be pursued throughout the entirety of one's life. We should teach young people and older people, when they come to Jesus, we teach them how to read the Bible and why to read the Bible. Not so they can check something off and say, I've done that. Not some religious activity, but for the Beautiful purpose of entering into intimacy with God. And God speaks to them. Intimacy with Jesus, the God-man. And God speaks to them. It's a deep life, not a shadow life. It is a victorious life, not a life of failure. It saddens me to see people who apparently know the Lord, who claim to know the Lord, And they always seem to be living in defeat. It's not necessary. In fact, it's contrary to what God would have for you. If you have had some besetting sin, and you have had it for years, and you have not overcome it, look, you can get out of it. How do you do it? Well, it's not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. You must yield yourself to the Lord without reservation. You must say to the Lord, Lord, I am through. I am sick and tired of being sick and tired of my underperforming. And the Lord says, good. Because you have to get to that place of total need where you say, I cannot do this, Lord. I cannot live this life that you call the Christian life. And He says, I know you can't. You never could if you had a hundred lives. But what you can do, you can relinquish control of your life to Jesus who lives in you and let Him live His life through you. Now, that sounds very mystical. doesn't sound very practical. But if you want to go ahead and continue to live in defeat, forget about it. But if you want victory, you'll find it in Christ. Mike read from 1 Corinthians 15 to introduce our worship service. And that last verse, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through Jesus Christ. That's where the victory is. It's not through my effort. It's through Christ living in me. 
by the Spirit of God, trusting the Holy Spirit to fill you. And He will move you, the Bible says. God promises this in Ezekiel 36. I will put my Spirit in you and He will move you. It's a given. When the Spirit comes to live in you and you yield to Him and submit to Him, He will live His life through you. And He will teach you how to be obedient and bring glory and honor to the Lord. This Christian life is phenomenal. It's a life of contentment. In late November, early November actually, the Chicago Cubs broke the curse of the billy goat for 108 years. They had not won a World Series. That's a long time. And I'm really sorry they won it then. I'm sorry for you Cubs fans, but that's just the way I am. I'm a Cardinals fan. But my heart was softened a little bit toward the Cubs by testimony of one of their players. He's a utility player. His name is Chris Coglin. And I, I thought he, I didn't like him before I read, heard his testimony. That's telling, isn't it? We draw opinions about people without really knowing them. In his testimony, he told about the death of his father when he was 15 years old. His dad died. His dad was his best friend, his mentor, the man who believed in him when no one else would believe. And Chris was a super athlete. He lived in Mississippi. He was a good football player, baseball player. And when his dad died, to escape the grief, he immersed himself in sharpening his skills as a baseball player. He was an all-star at every level in high school. He went to the University of Mississippi. He was all SEC at the University of Mississippi. He was drafted in the first rounds round as an infielder. That doesn't happen very often. Not many infielders are chosen in the first round of the draft by the Marlins. And then he had become, over that period of time, since his dad died, he became an alcoholic. And his life was just slowly becoming a life that was a train wreck. And a young man, one of his peers, who was also a professional ball player, shared Christ with him. And he said, I was so empty. I was so unhappy. He was empty. He had no contentment in his life. And Have you ever thought how the word content can be pronounced another way? What's the other way it can be pronounced? Content. So I'm going to do something I don't usually do. Drink in front of you. Not really. I'm not going to do that. But I've got two cans. You can see they look alike. These two cans. And the one in the left hand and the one in the right hand. Now, I'm going to see if I can crush this can in the right hand. Now, watch, Kevin, and make sure I'm not just faking it. I can't even make... He says he hopes I'm not successful and for good reason. I'm weak. I, I tell you, maybe the strongest person in the room could do this, but I doubt. Kevin, try that. Give it your best shot. Okay, that man's strong. But look at this one. Watch this one. What I do with this one? What? What's the difference? Content, right? This is what crushes people. This is how life ruins people. And if you know Jesus Christ, it's unnecessary for you to be crushed by the circumstances of your life. Because you have the right content in your life. 
And it's a person. Who is the person? It's the Lord. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Absolutely not. And this is what the abundant life that Christ speaks of. This is the shalom life that God speaks about through the prophet. This is what it is. It's this life of fulfillment. The Lord is our shepherd, isn't He? The Bible says we shall not want. He provides for us. He leads us beside the still waters. He gives us rest. He leads us in the paths of righteousness. He gives us guidance. He gives us safety. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. He's not simply with you and me. He's in you and me. Unbelievable. What a gospel we have. What a God we have. The abundant life is what God's planned for you. But you must enter it. It's in potential form. You must enter into it. Look at verse 9 of John 10. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The idea of finding pasture would be find contentment and satisfaction. What do you have to do? You have to enter through the door. Who is the door? Jesus is the door. Would you bow your heads with me a moment? I would imagine there's at least one person in this room who is empty, who's out of gas, and is desirous of being set free from a life that's going nowhere. May I tell you, it's very clear, isn't it? That if you enter through Jesus into this life which He offers, it's no ordinary life. It's an abundant life. It's shalom. Jesus is calling you to do that today. Would you, in your heart, say, Lord Jesus, I pray that You would give me abundant life, Your life. I admit to You, Lord, that I have kept You at arm's length. I have not wanted to give You full control of my life. But Lord, I'm coming and I'm begging You, Lord, to give me this life. I want You to be my full Lord. Not simply my Savior. Thank You, Lord, for hearing the prayer of that person who prayed that prayer. Thank You that You have a wonderful future for him or her. We claim the promise that You know the plans You have for us. Plans for welfare so that we might have a future and a hope. Oh God, may this year be one that's filled with hopeful futures because we're trusting You for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.